So Air really started with this mission that we felt consumers were not getting the best outcome when it came to consumer credit. Um, and there was so much uncertainty and so much chaos and so much confusion that we could help consumers get a better outcome with access to credit, managing their credit, and eventually never having the problem of having too much debt as a burden. Anish Varma is the founder and CEO of Credit Assessment Service Air. This is Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Bonnell Advisors, the consultants who help you expand your business to America. I'm Nasra Antavakurlifar, or Naz, and this season we're speaking to companies who've made the move so we can find out more about what's worked, what hasn't worked, and what they suggest to anyone on that journey. We're also putting your questions to Mount Bonnell CEO Sebastian Sauborn, so send those over to info at mountbonnell.com. You can also find that in the show notes. Hello, I'm Mr. Money. People can't seem to get along without me as cash or credit. What does credit mean to you? Gosh, I don't know. Buy now and pay later, I guess. Not bad. But there's a lot more to it than that. Credit has been defined as man's confidence in man. Webster's Dictionary says credit is trust, given or received. Almost everybody in the United States uses credit in one form or another. Millions of people use credit to buy the things that add up to a better living. Well, there's sure a lot of things that I'd like to buy for better living. How about giving me a little credit? Nobody gives you credit, John. It's something you have to earn. I don't understand, Mr. Money. How can you earn credit? Well, we'll select another channel on the learning machine by remote control and see. I'm excited about this week's guest. AIR is a new credit assessment service where they aim to look at the bigger picture. Now, if you're a freelancer or even if you're someone younger, you'll probably know the dilemma. You speak to your bank or another lender about getting a loan and they want to see monthly income statements and a healthy credit history, which can be hard to show if you're young or you're a freelancer or even if you move around a lot. And these are all conditions which are becoming increasingly common in the modern economy. It's a problem Anish was having himself, so he told Sebastian and I more about why he set up AIR and how it works, as well as talking about their expansion to the US and the different attitude to credit in America. I think there's always this joke, right? Behind many companies, you have a frustrated founder just trying to solve <laughs> his or her problem. Um, so yeah, very true. Guilty as charged. I am. Um, I used to joke back in the day when we were starting this company uh, that I was a reject and nobody would ever give me credit, nobody would ever give me loans. And, uh, you know, the joke probably continues that I'm building this company just so that I can get a couple of mortgages. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I am user number one. Uh, but in, 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 in learning about my own experiences and learning about the challenges, I talked to a lot of people. And it seemed that I'm not the only one. And the more people I talk to, the more they come out and they tell me about their problems. So um, it acts as a nice motivator because you can see what you're solving and you can relate to their pe- these people. Uh, but it also puts a lot of responsibility on your shoulder because they are waiting for something. And so what you're, really, what you're really doing, if I understand you correctly, kind of the technology-based solution, which would then be used by banks or other um, um, financial institutions, that when they check somebody's loan or credit application, they would run that through your systems and it would give a different, potentially better result than 
the traditional credit bureaus. Yeah, to some extent, right? So we are a data and a tech company. We're not a lender. We're not a financial institution in that core sense. Um, so we partner with financial institutions, banks, lenders, credit card providers. And as you said, the aim is to help consumers get the right outcome. In, in some cases, it doesn't mean getting the line of credit. But you do have to think about newer and better techniques to make better decisions. Because ultimately, giving credit from a bank's perspective is about making a decision. And if you're using slightly outdated or antiquated tools or inefficient technologies or data sets, you're never going to make the best decision. So we wanted to make sure the decision that is being made is as close to ground reality as possible. And that's the work we've been doing over the last five years. So I assume then that um, traditional credit referencing agencies and bureaus have outdated data. So I wouldn't call it outdated data. I would just call it a set of data that has been captured because it was easy to capture, but it points in a direction which is not the entire picture. And I'll explain that a bit, right? So if you think about a consumer's life and if you think about their financial life, Uh, there's so many dimensions to it. There's what happened in the past, what's happening right now, and what's going to happen in the future, right? Sadly, if you look at those three tenses, if you may, like past tense, present tense, future tense, a lot of the work that had gone in from the 50s and 60s, the models that were built, the data sets that were used, were sort of only historical. They were kind of looking backwards. And that was powerful. It's not bad, but it's missing two big dimensions if you think about it. Uh, and that's really the crux of what we focus on. And in fact, a lot of the customers we work with, I, I used to use this word, I call them future prime. Like they're, they're great consumers. The history that they have doesn't tell you the story, but their future is exciting. It's, you know, they're going to be great people. They're going to do some amazing things. And you want to take a bet on them. It's just you don't know how to read that future. So what AIR does is in many ways helps you understand the present and the future. And if combined with the past, That gives you the entire picture. And that's really how we even talk about our work, right? It's, it's opening up the landscape. It's removing sort of the curtain and allowing you to really understand the consumer in the full holistic sense. So your consumers, they're people looking for credit and they're lenders. Correct. So uh, we are a company that has two dimensions, two sides to it. So um, we work with lenders, uh, financial institutions, banks, uh, and also consumers. Uh, but the way it works today is a consumer that goes to a bank and is maybe not able to get the right decision or there's some uncertainty in making the decision, gets sent to air. And in some cases, we're also working with consumers who already have existing lines of credit and seeing if we can create even better outcomes for them or avoid financial distress or avoid the traps that they might fall into. So as a consumer, you don't directly come to air today yet, but in the future you might. Uh, but today you come to a bank and then the bank sends you to ours. So let's assume I get sent to you guys. What, what happens? So we, if I sort of strip away all the technology and just kind of bring it down to the very, very basics, we really got excited about studying the idea that if you as a consumer and I as a bank loan manager and officer at a bank were able to have a conversation, and not an interrogation, just a conversation, and if I was trying to understand the context of your situation, where you are, what you studied, how you get here, what you're trying to do, what's your financial stability, how you think about savings, how you think about insurance, the resilience, you would tell me a lot of interesting things that would help me make a strong view whether or not to give you a credit card to start you off or you know, a car loan to get you to work. And that's sort of what we have ended up building through technology. So the process we have built, um, and it's powered by um, obviously complete automation, allows you as a consumer to come to us directly. We engage with you. You tell us 
relevant facts about your current circumstances, your future circumstances, your plans. And that helps us build a financial profile of you that is ultimately driving how we think your creditworthiness might look like in the coming 18, 24 months, 36 months. So we, we call this the interactive virtual interview. So it's 100% automated. But obviously what's happening behind the scenes is you and I are exchanging information about your circumstances. So we're also trying to make it a lot more relevant to your circumstances, your situation. It's per getting personal at scale. So a moment ago, you, you, you used the phrase future prime. So I'm wondering, what's the profile of this kind of person? And, and, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about these people who you think have a lot of potential, but right now are not being served? So I used to fit in that category. I would say a lot of my employees personally feel that they fit in that category. So it's very personal to all of us. Um, so I'll, I'll walk you through the situation which usually leads to these kind of individuals, right? So uh, in many cases, they might never have had exposure to financial credit before. Uh, maybe they're young professionals, they're just starting off on their journey, uh, or maybe they're self-employed, you know, especially with the rise of the gig economy, freelancers, contractors, um, people like me who are founding companies who are always considered self-employed people. Um, the circumstances have always been such that we haven't been able to build a traditional credit history. And so when we do go interface with the market and we go for the right reasons and we say, hey, we want a credit card because we want the miles or we want 0% financing on this computer or this piece of furniture or perhaps we want a mortgage, the market doesn't know how to read us. And that's because historical data didn't exist. But these individuals are usually employed um, they're in, you know, early in their journey, early in their career. So they're trying to get to some place. They might not have a lot of savings today, but they're starting to put together the right plans for what their future is going to look like. And those are some of the things that AIR is trying to understand and trying to assess that is this customer going to take the right steps that make them a lot more stronger in the future? And ultimately, for a lender as well, that's kind of the customers you want to like, you know, get yourself exposed to because they're going to be great long-term customers. They're, they're you know, possibly going to go on and take a mortgage and possibly going to stay with you for the next 20, 30, 40 years. And, you know, it's pretty long, actually, if you think about banking, you're getting a customer in early. So that's the sort of relationship that we go, we think about. Um, we do also see customers who have very different circumstances. Sometimes it's really sad, but you see individuals who for, you know, let's suppose there's a divorce that happens in the family. Um, everything had been in the name of the spouse and now the other spouse has to pick it up. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is a person who's in their late 30s or 40s and they're sort of returning to market because circumstances such, but they're considered sort of invisible to the market because they have no credit in their name. and. Also, then they're struggling, and everything used to be so good a few months ago. Uh, we've heard of even sadder stories, like people returning from the army. This is the worst, right? You're out serving your country, and you come back, and you should be treated like a hero, but often the system just looks at you and looks at you as like, hey, what? who are you? Um, so again, these stories are really real, and we would talk a lot about them. In some cases, we can relate to them. Most consumers I talk to know somebody in their family who's gone through it, in some cases them themselves. Uh, but these are really the, the case studies that we think about. So a, a lot of what you've mentioned says really interesting things, I guess, about the economy in general. So we're going to go into that. But first, can you tell us a little bit about founding your company here in the UK and what that was like? Yeah, so I've been living out in the UK for, uh, well, I guess when I started the company about seven, eight years, and I had previously done a few companies. So I, I'd sort of been getting my feet wet in, um, you know, building companies, getting hard knocks, uh, you know, learning the hard way, if you may. So I interrupt you. Are you American? Because you sound very American. I am. 
I like to call myself a, a, a phrase which is a third culture citizen. So I was born in a different place. I grew up in a bunch of different countries and I live now in a different place. I agree I've picked up something like an American mid-Atlantic accent. Uh, over the years I did live in New York for many years and I did my university close by. Um, but yes, I am a... I, I say I'm a, I'm a proud migrant to the UK, a legal migrant. I know that word these days has uh, some very negative and strong connotations, but I'm, I'm very proud to be a migrant. I, I hope I'm meaningfully contributing to the economy. But um, my story is not unique, and I think there's a lot of us who are uh, mobile for a variety of reasons, whether it's personal reasons, professional reasons, um, academic reasons. There's reasons for people to move around, and there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we should celebrate that. But these group of individuals like myself, often, you know, we'll be looking at building companies. In my case, I, I ran a company prior to this for six, seven years, which was mostly focused on the UK, but also then Asia and the Middle East. Um, so, yeah, that's how I got exposed to the idea of building companies and taking on bigger and bigger problems to solve. And so tell us a little bit about when you founded Air and a little bit about your UK journey. And then we'll, we'll talk a bit about the expansion across the, across the pond. Yeah, so... Before Air was a company, it was just my personal fight with the system. Uh, <laughs> and I've talked about this a lot in the past. Um, I, as you can you know, tell, I, I had a number of um, run-ins with consumer credit, not getting access, not getting a card when you wanted it, not getting a phone. And I just used to get frustrated and I used to write really, really angry letters to the government and you know, regulators and politicians, anybody who would listen to me. Uh, and people, you know, gave me meetings. You know, they said, oh, this is interesting. This guy is talking about this random stuff. You know, bring him in. Let's talk to him. And everybody used to give me a pat on the back, be like, this is cool. Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, you're right. You're raising a good point. Uh, but nobody would do anything about it, right? And I think maybe I was too naive to expect people to immediately start, you know, changing their behavior for this and making a change. So eventually, it just got to a stage. I was like, this is ridiculous. I need to build a company to solve this problem. Nobody's solving the problem. Everybody acknowledges there's a problem. And the only way to solve this problem is go on the inside, build a company, and change the system from the inside. And that was a crazy idea that I had. And I, you know, even some of the stuff underneath of what we've tried to do is, was pretty out there. I'm not a person from the world of consumer credit. And maybe your listeners would love to hear this. Like, it doesn't, you don't always have to come from the sector. Like, I had to learn everything about consumer credit by, you know, you obviously start with Wikipedia, and then you read, and you meet people, and you Google, and you meet more people, and you sort of expand your knowledge set and you, you get more and more exposed to the ins and outs of the, the sector. You, you learn the words, the, the lexicon, the phrases. Um, and that's sort of been the last six years of my life, you know, learning, getting up to speed, building companies, surrounding myself with people who teach me as well some of this stuff. All I've had is the, the vision of what the world could look like. Um, and I think that's what we're really trying to build at AIR. But I, I assume these questions are very country-specific. Uh, you mean the way we do things at air? Yeah, in terms of how does consumer credit work in different. So different there are markets. going to be nuances for each country. So, um, for example, right now, and you know, we'll talk a bit about this later, but we're moving from the UK to the US, and part of that for us was also we saw the UK and US surprisingly similar in their then um, their approach to consumer finance, consumer credit. There's subtle differences, but the differences aren't as pronounced as maybe moving from. Uh, let's say, UK to Spain, uh, which surprisingly you think geographically should be closer, but historically there's been reasons, regulatory reasons, other reasons why UK and Spain have been much further apart in this this particular sector. 
And we find that a lot, by the way. So we have a lot of clients um, of Mount Bernal advisors who uh, essentially when they're British and, and Irish or, or based here, uh, but are even, even based in, in countries like Germany, they find it actually from all various industries, yeah, they find it, well, it's, it's a lot easier actually to go to the U.S., rather than sort of doing the same thing in Italy, France, Spain. Not only are you dealing with five different languages, but also five different legal systems. So I think that's a very common um, experience that you had. Yeah, and you know, it's, um, there is a benefit of a, a single language market to some extent, 300 million people. Um, I would never try to call the U.S. one single market, and maybe we should talk about that. It's, it's multiple small markets, but collectively it comes across as a lot more manageable to attack, if you may, in a, in a, in a business sense. And, and what's this expansion been like? Where, when did you decide to expand? And I'm sure we're all thinking of obvious reasons, but but what was it for you where you're like, you know, we've got to go to the U.S.? So Air always started as a view that we will be a global company, right? Well, the problem we're solving isn't just a U.K. problem. It exists in any, any and every country. Um, in some countries, the problem is a lot more magnified. We knew, however, the next pit stop we make outside the UK has to be one where it really shows that this company has come of size and we can, we can win in a sophisticated market, we can win in a market that's very mature, um, it's complex. And in many ways, US represented the right thesis points, right? It's, it's big, it's large, similar regulations to some extent like the UK, you know, you care about the consumers, English speaking, <laughs> there's a lot of easy things to win on. So I would say about three-ish years ago, we started getting a lot serious about the U.S. We've always kept a close relationship. We have a large investor base in the U.S. as well, which is a bit ironic given that we're a British company. I think in the early days, most of our capital actually came out of the U.S., which was very, very unusual for a British company. Why do you think that is, though? Do you, do you think that's something about the industry you're in, what you're trying to do? Does it say something about the American attitude to credit? So Air was, and I always say this, a very, very out there idea. In fact, 2014, when I was starting and I used to talk about this, a lot of people used to laugh and mock us that you guys are crazy. Like, what the hell are you trying to do? This is not even a, a thing. Um, and I maybe benefited from the fact that people in the U.S. immediately grabbed onto it and they, 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 they saw the, the potential of what we could do if we got this right. And they were very open-minded about that. So uh, you know, without sort of getting into the politics of it, that was beneficial. And we would always raise a lot of capital there, also then get support from Europe, which is great. Um, but we've always had a close relationship with the U.S. We've spent time, and I've always been building the relationships that we needed. But about a year and a half ago or so, we got quite serious about it and said, okay, now we're going to really set down roots, open a company, start looking at guiding our first few people in, um, the legal process, the regulatory process, and all the stuff that unfolds from it becoming an aspiration to actually the, the grunt work that goes into building out a U.S. presence. And now you are based in, in New York, right? In the States? Yeah, so we have a, a U.S. presence, which is in New York. Uh, we have a very small employee base, and we, we, we often joke we have one and a half employees in the U.S. right now. <laughs> but that's the big push. Uh, I'm spending a lot of time there alongside to really help grow out what the U.S. was going to look like. Um, I think one of the things which a lot of founders don't acknowledge or a lot of CEOs don't acknowledge is Sometimes in trying to chase the international market, you can kill your domestic business. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that distraction can be very scary, very risky. And there's a graveyard of companies that have done this wrong. So we have been very mindful that you kind of preserve what we're doing in the UK. You don't let the UK get sacrificed in, you know, in trying to pursue the US. 
and you take a tempered approach to make sure the U.S. is getting what it needs, but the U.K. is not being starved. Um, and that's what is going to happen for us for the next year. And you know, obviously, uh, the, the size of the market is so big, I do expect the U.S. market will overtake our U.K. operations in the near future. That's just common sense. Uh, but we do want to remain a U.K.-based company. We, we, we kind of like our, our uh, roots in London. We used to have this phrase, made in London for the world. <laughs> <laughs> And New York was basically because you said you studied there? East Coast is easier for us, um, you know, time zone-wise, coordination. Um, we also know from a financial services perspective, there's a bigger base. So we're a fintech company, naturally. Um, being close to the regulators is also going to be a big factor in the kind of business we're in. Uh, most of our regulators are based in Washington, D.C. And believe me, as a tech founder, I never thought I'd spend that much time in Washington, D.C. But uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good city. I really do like it. It's, it's, it's a fun place to be. Um, so that's that's why East Coast has become the choice for us. Um, the nature of our work is even though when I whenever I go to the U.S. or even our people on the ground there, they have to travel a lot, and we have to go to all kinds of places in Texas and California and Chicago and Illinois and Ohio. So we we travel a lot. There's a fridge in the office which has magnets from every every state. We'll probably get all 50 states soon. Um, that's a reality as well. You have to put in the effort. You have to put in the mileage. You have to go to You have to go see these big customers wherever they are. They're not going to come to you. And are the regulations the same across the states? It varies for each fintech. Um, we sit in a very interesting space where our regulatory uh, position in the UK um, is actually something that you get a license for. So we actually get permission by the, the regulators to do what we do, which is kind of cool. Uh, it was also, I understand when we went through that, The regulators used to joke with us that this is the first time they're going to issue one of these in many, many, many years. And the joke used to extend that we're going to become the fourth credit bureau or something in the UK, which, mm. you know, it was kind of crazy, like a small company becoming the fourth largest company in the space. <laughs> um, the US has obviously a similar mindset. You want to do the right thing for the consumer. You want to make sure that they're not being, um, you know, getting negative outcomes. But the regulation is uh, imparted in a different way. Um, but at heart, yes, the same sentiment. You want to make sure that what you're doing doesn't bias against race, religion, ethnicity. It's positive for the consumer. It's it's helping the consumer get on their journey. You're not over-indebting the consumer with credit. This season, we're taking your questions. Send them to info at mountbernal.com. We've put that in the show notes. I caught up with Sebastian Sauborn to find out exactly what Mount Bernal does. Uh, Mount Bernal advisors help European entrepreneurs to expand their business to the United States. And what this really means is taking care of all the um, administrative, logistical, and other steps involved in setting up a business in the United States. That involves tax, legal... Uh, banking elements, finance elements, uh, payroll, hiring people, creating contracts. And um, so we cover that uh, whole process and we've been doing so um, since 2008. We know many, if not all of the potential pitfalls, you know, uh, that are there, issues that have to be um, avoided, kind of traps that um, an international entrepreneur who's looking to set up a business in the United States has to navigate around. And that's really that's really what we help with. So through that process, we will manage to get the business set up in the U.S. And that's our promise to clients, normally within four weeks. Millions of people use installment cash credit when they borrow cash from consumer finance companies or small loan companies, commercial banks, and other financial institutions. 
Consumers use installment cash loans to pay off accumulated bills to keep their credit rating good. They use installment cash loans to pay for vacations, to pay for special education for their children. And people use installment cash loans to meet unexpected emergencies. So you can see the use of installment credit is mighty important to the consumers of this country. And, and I'm wondering, so you've gone to the US and you're talking to lenders about your service. What's their reaction compared to in the UK? And what does that say about yeah, just trying to get credit in the, in the two different markets? How have you adjusted to that? So the problem has always been known. And that's kind of the, the cool part, right? You go, you explain what you're doing, but they know the problem. And that's one of the benefits we have because UK, US are very similar at heart, um, underlying the metrics, the percentages, the stats. So lenders are like, aha, yes, we know the problem you're solving. We've been trying to solve this problem ourselves. Um, and what's been kind of neat, and you know, without sort of touting our own horn here, we did notice that we start off in the UK and we have this nice image in the US where a lot of companies kind of know about us. They're like, oh yeah, you guys are that like British company out there that's kind of done something really cool. Oh, are you coming to the US now? So it's kind of cool. We're like a little bit of a luxury import. You know, somebody actually once said that you're kind of like the Aston Martin car, like, you know, James Bond drives it, it's in the UK and now it's available in the US. Great analogy. I loved it. Um, but so there's some of those benefits. Sometimes, you know, the grunt work you put in one market helps build a reputation in the other market. Uh, we've always had really good media coverage in the U.S. Um, we've, you know, like I said, the problem we're solving is so acute and people can really relate to it that a lot of U.S. blogs and, you know, sectors in our, you know, people who write about our sector have kind of highlighted us and showcased us. Um, so that's helped. However, you still have to put in the hard work. There's no easy path entering the U.S. It's not a, you know, finger snap. I mean, I hear what you say, you know, that, that the U.K. and the U.S. are very similar in terms of how they approach credit. Um, but I think in the U.S., credit is still more, um, I, I, people have a lot more credit, you know, than, than they used to have here. And I often think, um, and I, I lived in the U.S. for many years, um, that because most U.S. citizens don't have much holiday time, you know, um, instead, so they spend all their money on buying stuff, you know, they have a boat, they have a four by four, they have this, they have that, you know, so... I mean, everything is financed, you know, and it's it's very easy and accessible. I mean, when I bought a truck, um, you know, uh, in, in Texas when I lived there, I mean, you go to the shop, you know, you go to the car dealership and like two hours later, that's it, you know, you're done, you drive off, you know. So it's so, and and, and it's so easy, you know, and, and it's so accessible that, I mean, I see what you mean. It's similar in the UK, but it's still, wouldn't you agree that it's still more, I mean, I, wanna, I don't want to call it extreme but that there's a lot more credit use than in Europe. Yeah, and and so I would almost put, if you rank it that way, like the U.S. will definitely have the highest per capita debt ratio, and which is true. Um, the U.K. is significantly behind, which is in a way a good thing, and Europe's even further behind, if sort of if you think about continental Europe. And so, yeah, absolutely, you're right. Uh, the access to credit, the awareness of credit itself. You know, I, I, I was very intrigued to see High school students, when they graduate, their awareness of what a credit score is, what it even means, and the FICO score, all these buzzwords that, you know, are very aloof to a lot of kids of a similar age group in the UK, which is good in a way because that means they're a little bit more interact, you know, engaged with it. It's also slightly a concern because that means they know that they can overload on credit. Or that they need to, perhaps. Correct. And that's, I think, when we think about our mission statement, one of the things we talk about is you want to enable credit for those who need it, but you don't want those who shouldn't have it or are overburdened by it 
to struggle in that burden, right? So enable credit, stop debt. It's it's really interesting when you sort of put both sides together. But I I do agree that the 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 mindset around credit in the U.S. is much bigger. It is you know a, it's a market as well that has a lot more players in our space. Uh, I think the average American has uh, two times as many credit cards in their wallet than the average Brit. So you know, there's a stat for you, I think, and I'm sure somebody can fact check that exactly. <laughs> and also, they have they have different types of credit, right? So I remember, for example, um, some people I know they had car title loans. You know, I don't think they have that in the UK, right? So basically, you you have a clean title for your car, so you out you own it outright, uh, and and basically you bring it to this to this lender, and then you get credit, and it's horrendously high interest rates, you know. So it's only for the desperate, it's like payday loans, you know. Um, but there, there's a lot of, I mean, it, it, I guess the credit portfolio that's available, it's it's a lot bigger in the U.S. than it's than it's here. Yeah, and I think that just comes out of how you see the market and its dynamics. And people will all, you know, uh, the, the laissez-faire approach always allows you to pop up more business models that are going to be looking at, in times, abusing the customers as well. And I think that does happen. We've been very clear. We, we do not work with payday lenders. It's, it's actually one of the, my principles that I was very adamant on from day one. It's it's very we're very public about it, and we've kind of absolutely stuck to our guns uh, over the last five years. But you're right. There's going to be n number of players, and you know if you think about credit, that idea that business has been around for 2,000 years. It's not new, right? There've been people lending money and borrowing money for years and years. Um, some get abused. Some play the ethical rules, and you know you've got to find your own moral compass in this as well. So it's also like stuff. I mean, I, I used to own a ranch. In fact, you own two ranches in the US. Yeah, one in Texas, one in New Mexico. Sebastian, all your um, examples seem so classically Texan, <laughs> buying a truck, owning a ranch. <laughs> Did you have a cowboy hat as well? Or? Yeah, oh, I still have. <laughs> Believe me, more than one, you know. <laughs> and, um, you know, I bought both of these um, uh, using owner finance, yeah? which is like a non, I mean, they don't have that here either. So your lender is essentially the seller, you know. And they, they have it mortgaged probably to their eyeballs, you know, and then they kind of mortgage it on to you, you know. But it's all properly done with the title company, you know. So, I mean, it's, there's a deed and everything. Um, so I think for some Europeans, um, is, is what I want to say, the credit landscape in the U.S. is a bit bewildering, you know. So this is why this is a really interesting conversation because you are you're kind of right, you're right, in, the middle, uh, right in the middle of that. And uh, I find it quite interesting that you... Um, you know, approach the U.S. market, you know, with with that in mind. And there's more that we also have to uncover. I mean, there's there's use cases we service in the U.K. that you know also we don't even see them in the U.K., which are, exist in the U.S. Right. So there's a reverse that we have to do. There's still more R&D, still more research. Um, so that will happen, right? Each market will open up and expose new things. And even if you think about emerging markets, right, how they're thinking about credit, it's it's a very different mindset. Uh, in some cases. Products like credit cards might never take off in certain emerging markets, but other installment loans will take off. And you have to adapt yourself to that. But you're right. The U.S. is always, the, I always call it the most sophisticated and the most uh, chaotic market when it comes to consumer credit. <laughs> so given this really different landscape, I'm wondering what's the profile of the type of person who comes to you to try to get a better credit score? And how's, how does that compare to the U.K.? Has that changed the way you approach expanding? So uh, that's been the interesting part. At a consumer level, the stories and the personas, if you may, that we're servicing and helping are very similar, right? That the, the inherent dynamics of the market and the way credit is handed out, you still create the same pockets of people who are getting either you know unserved or marginalized. Um, so we, we, we think at a consumer level, it's very 
homogeneous. Um, naturally, the players are much, much larger. Um, sometimes I, I remember used to talking to some of the, the big lenders and they would tell us their volume numbers. And it was honestly like a whole order of magnitude, an extra zero compared to the UK numbers. And uh, it's, it's the size that you have to deal with. Now, there's also something really interesting in the US, which is um, the nature of regulation there from a lender's perspective has been very state by state. So there are sometimes lenders who will operate in certain states and not in certain states. And also certain states will have very specific laws around credit, credit-driven, you know, granting. So that's some of the stuff that has to be unpacked, um, unlike the UK where it kind of operates at a, it's a sort of national level. Again, this is the nuances you start leaning into. And then, you know, as I was saying earlier, the US is still not one big market. It's I don't know if you... So I studied in the U.S. and I learned this quite fascinating anecdote. So, um, so you know, like Coca-Cola and all these things. So different parts of the U.S. call these different types of things. So there's soda, there's pop, and then soda pop. And based on whether you're in the Midwest or the East Coast or the West Coast or North or South, you know, people will call it different things. And in the interchanges, they'll call it different things. So just kind of, it's, it's always an example that stuck in my head over the years. And I remember sort of learning about this when I first went to college kids coming in from different parts of the country and they would, you know, at the canteen, they'd be like, could I have some soda? Could I have some pop? And I was like, what, what the hell is this different thing? Like, is there two drinks here? <laughs> it's one language, right? <laughs> it's one language. But it, that's quite interesting because you do have to sort of break the the U.S. landmass into you know, four or five or six chunks, if you may, and say, look, this is how we're going to go after each of these markets because you cannot try to bite the entire U.S. market in one go. And I... I I cannot stress this enough. Like this is such an important part for people to think about um, the East Coast, even the Northeast, how they behave and act, and you know the way they're set up is quite different uh, for many products than how maybe the South works or California works. Some cases you might get lucky if you're making like a music app, and maybe that's sort of much more universal. Uh, maybe I'm true. Maybe it's right, or maybe it's not. I don't know. Uh, but that's quite important to think about it. So, um, and then. Underneath that, and this is really, I think, um, I was fortunate I was able to do this in my younger years, just getting on the ground and driving or being in these places, uh, you know, not just flying in, you know, having a meeting and going out, like take, you know, t- Greyhound buses. I, don't, I cannot emphasize how amazing it is to go on a Greyhound bus. It's, it's tiring, but you go through the country, you get to see people, you get to meet people, and you appreciate how they think about different products, what kind of phones they're using, what kind of apps they're using, what's their interaction with different services, language, lexicon. Um, Are you still doing that, though? Are you, like, getting on a bus trying to do some market research? I don't do Greyhound so much, but I I, I kid you not, I love renting a car and driving. And I know my team gives me a hard time. They're like, why don't you just take the flight between two states? And I will drive. And sometimes you take the train or drive, but you get a lot more exposure to the local names, I mean, we talk about payday lending and you talked about, you know, um, cash loans. I mean, some of the stuff you see in smaller towns is scary. Yes. It's it's purely scary. There's no other way of describing how consumers are being treated. Uh, part of that motivates me to think that we need to work even harder to make sure consumers are getting a better deal. But it also shows you the behavior that's sort of being done at some level that we can sort of stop. So th- this is interesting because you're talking about sort of doing your research out and about. So what what's it like trying to gather that, trying to chat to people? 
Um, yeah, so uh, you have to be able to get people to open up and talk. Um, not everybody wants to talk to random strangers. Um, about money. About well. money, about behavior. I mean, you, sometimes it's just obvious stuff, right? You want to understand, like, how they're thinking about shopping and what kind of apps they're using. What kind of, Just observing as well is interesting. What kind of phones they're using? Why are they using that phone? Are they even using the phone in the right way that you think they might be using? So uh, and this is common, I think, for any company trying to bring into a new market, you kind of want to really um, get on the ground and learn it. So um, I'm, I'm going to tell you about this Japanese uh, word that I've, I've always loved. It's called a Genshi Gambutsu. Um, a Genshi Gambutsu, it, it sort of stems from a, it's a philosophy from Toyota. Uh, we really take it to heart at air. It, it means that if you really want to learn about a problem or something, you have to get out of the meeting room and you have to get down to the factory floor. And in fact, it stems from this philosophy that you know, Toyota, they used to say, like managers, if they're trying to solve a problem, they need to get down to the factory floor, get on the ground, look under the car, see where the oil is leaking from or get where the screw is loose. Because sitting in a meeting room, you're too far removed from the problem. You will never solve the problem. Um, so that philosophy is very true. And in fact, if you think about our core product as well, that's exactly what it does. It's a Genshi Gambutsu. We're going to the consumer saying, do you tell me about your situation? Because that's how we're going to solve the problem. I'm not going to sit out there and my sort of ivory tower and trying to figure out who you are. Um, but the same applies here, right? You, we call it doing a Genshi. You have to get down to where we're going to be serving. I mean, you talk about Texas. I had a fun time driving through Texas and attending meetings and going to barbecues and, you know, it's really, really spicy chicken wings as well, which I love, but it was great because you get a sense of how people are interacting and engaging and the consumer mindset. And ultimately, these are the consumers we're going to serve and we have to know how they're how they're going to be engaging with our service. And even subtle things about their behavior patterns around when they want to go to an ATM or a cash machine, you know, how easy is it to get to, whereas in the UK it might be different. So all these things kind of feed into your overall analysis and how you adjust the product just enough that it feels like it's correctly localized. But you're talking about being on the ground, and the US is so huge. So what are you doing? Are you breaking your expansion up into areas yeah how are you approaching this yeah so that's been i mean it's it's really hard to cover all of it so yes like i said you have to break it up in chunks uh we've been a bit more like i said a bit more biased towards the east coast uh that said occasionally we end up do going out to down south or other places but east coast in general and one of the fortunate things about our sector has been that in consumer credit there seems to be a concentration around a few cities I don't know why. It happens, right? So there's a place in uh, in Delaware where there's a bunch of credit card companies. There's a place in Ohio, uh, in Texas, as we talked about. So in a way, it's kind of nice because if you hit these big hub spots, you kind of get a lot of the exposure to how the people who work there, they think and how they're, you know, thinking about improvements, their mindset. So, um, but you're right. It's it's too big to cover in one go. You still have to start somewhere. Um, I... In my case, I have the benefit naturally of having done this for the last 15, 20 years of all my trips and you know, my university days and learning all the stuff that I've learned, um, behavior patterns. Uh, I mean, I've never had to buy a ranch yet, but maybe if that, <laughs> that, that will give me an exposure to another market base, I'm sure. Who might need credit as well. Exactly. <laughs> and then the other part is also, if, and you know, we're very fortunate, we've been able to hire great people along the journey, but People who have been in the game on the ground, they help us understand the, their perspective on the problem, right? So um, our, our small but nascent U.S. team, you know, one of the big things I wanted to hire was people who could strategically think about this thing rather than just saying, oh, this is what worked in Europe. We're just going to copy-paste it and get it done. No, that, that's not going to fly. You have to 
adapt and adjust. And, you know, we've been, the other day we were sort of arguing over a couple words that we use in the UK that the don't perfectly translate over to the U.S. And what, what are they? You know, it's subtle things like the word. We used to use the word partners um, for lenders, right? So companies we work with, we used to call them partners. Uh, in the U.S., it has a much more loser word sense, right? And partners kind of like, oh yeah, they're kind of affiliated with you. They're not really a customer. They're not a closely coupled relationship as a company. So then we had to go through rethinking how that word gets done, and then five years of history in the U.K. using that word, teaching everybody that's the word. Um, even certain words like you know underserved, underbanked, you know, there's subtle differences in how people behave and think about it. Invisibles, um, and these are important choices to make because either you keep two modes of words. So in the UK you use one word, in the US you use another word, and then if you go to Brazil and you go to India, you keep using different words, which is just too chaotic. But at least it's a different language, so that makes well, it easier. that or you know, in some cases you'll just have to keep adapting and building a bigger lexicon, or you try to find a, a word that does it all. There's no perfect model, but you just have to be aware what worked at home is not going to work overseas. To, to wrap up, I want to know what's your advice to companies who are wanting to move to the U.S. And maybe things that you hadn't thought about that have been a surprise to you. Yeah, what, what would be your, your nuggets? Yeah, so I, I, I sort of break it into two categories. Right? One is um, do your research, do your diligence, right? It is not just a matter of like, oh, yeah, we're in the app store and that's going to be easy and quick and we're going to be there. It's all English speaking. We saw it on Facebook. Um, it's a very complex market. There's nuances of behavior. People have different expectations. You know, you might have seen in the movies. It doesn't mean it happens in the real world. So that's one, one big category of things. And the other one, and I think this is just kind of stems from the same idea, like make sure your business at home is stable. You know, you know don't just run to the U.S. because it's exciting and, you know, you heard about it in the movies and, you know, your friend told you about it. You can easily lose your business at home if you don't focus and you completely get distracted on focusing in the U.S. So Sebastian's nodding. I agree, yeah, no, it's a, you're totally right. And it's, it's because it's hard, right? And I think there's, there's a lot of companies also who then, as you, as you mentioned previously, you know, who, who don't make it, right? Yeah, and then, and the, they, then they end up with nothing, right? And they kill both markets, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and then you're sitting with nothing, right? So it is, it is, and you know, all I'm founders, and I'm guilty of the same, are very ambitious, and we are very optimistic, and we're like, of course we can conquer the U.S. and do the U.K. and do Sweden and do this. Uh, you, you have to know your limits, right? Uh, and the U.S. will push your limits, so be mindful of that. But it's a great place to do business. If You can never be a successful global company if you've not conquered the U.S. Correct. So that's the answer. So $30 a month, that's the maximum total obligation we can safely afford to take on for new credit payments of any kind. That's right, John. Gee, Mr. Money, do girls have to learn all this about credit, too? Well, Judy, women do most of the shopping when they get married and very often spend most of the family income. Well, sure. If a guy has to work hard to earn money, well, a wife ought to learn to help get the most out of it. That's right. A husband and wife should plan together how the family earnings should be spent. Before they borrow cash or buy anything on installments, they should carefully figure whether the benefits of credit service are worth the extra charge. Well, you can be sure, Mr. Money, that well, before I buy anything I need on the installment plan or borrow cash for some good reason, I'll figure out all the costs to make sure the deal's worthwhile. And so will I. Good. Oh, gee, our time's up already, Mr. Money. We can't be late for class. When will we see you again? Soon, I hope. Are you ready to go now? Goodbye, Mr. Money. And thanks a lot for helping us learn how to use credit wisely. So long. Goodbye. This is Move Your Business to the United States from Mount Vernell Advisors, 
I'm Nastran Tavakoli Far, and you just heard Anish Varma from Air. We've put their details in the show notes. Our sound engineer is Emmett Glynn, and our podcast manager is Novena Paunovich. We use some samples from the Prelinger archives, who have some great educational films and home movies from the US. We'll be back in two weeks with more from another company who've made the move. Send us questions you want answered to info at mountbonnell.com. That's M-T-B-O-N-N-E-L-L.com. Or see the show notes. Okay, we'll speak to you again in two weeks.